you know, as, I, as we think back on our lives, I wonder how many of us could tell a story of an opportunity that we had in the past, but uh, we couldn't see how it could possibly work out. So we chickened out. And now looking back, we, if we look back, we think, man, I, I wish, I wish I would have pursued it. I wish, it, I'll never know what might have been. What was I so afraid of? And especially if you're a person of faith who believes in a God who loves you and who works through people, uh, maybe you even sensed it was something that God was leading you towards and prompting you towards, but the perceived risk and the possible cost and the unknowns, they were just too overwhelming. Last week, we began this series, Hand Me Another Brick, and we started talking about the fact that, yes, life is a journey, and it's nice to enjoy the ride, but eventually we have to pay attention to the destination and ultimately where we're headed. And every one of us, me included, we've been in stages of our lives where we could care less about the destination because we were basically focused on enjoying the ride. Because our natural inclination in this life is to invest a lot of time and money and energy to experience maximum pleasure and to avoid pain and avoid discomfort. And, but a life lived with no bigger guiding vision is a life that ends up with regret, even for people who accomplish a great deal. As Stephen Covey put it, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take gets us to the wrong place faster. And I've had many people in my life who have gotten to the end of their lives and share with me about how they invested their time and their energy and their money over their lifetime. And essentially they say with regret, I leaned my ladder against the wrong wall. And the benefit of a God-given guiding vision for your life is that it increases greatly your chance to get to the end and look back and breathe a sigh of relief and go, I did it. What God gave me to do, what God positioned me to do, developed me for, gifted me for, called me towards, resourced me for, I did it. And as we said last week, a guiding vision takes the seemingly mundane things of our life, our day-to-day life, and it helps you see how they tie to this bigger thing that God is trying to do and use you to accomplish in this life. And then suddenly your life has meaning and purpose and drive and direction. Now, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, and if you were to say to me, you know, Chad, as I think about it, honestly, my Christian life, there's not a lot of energy and passion. Honest, honestly, it's anything but passionate. I want to help you understand why. And this isn't a shaming thing. It isn't a guilt thing. It's just a statement of connection. And it's why we're taking a few weeks to talk about this. The reason why your Christian life, the reason you lack energy or passion in your Christian life is because you don't have a vision for what God wants to do in and through you. And as a result, all your energy and courage and drive and determination gets directed towards your secular pursuits and making your life better and as wrinkle-free as possible, and that's natural. And being a Christian becomes simply a list of do's and don'ts and showing up on a Sunday morning and giving a little money, and Christianity becomes reduced to something in the background of your life. And when you live that way long enough, there's a predictable outcome. Eventually, you'll begin to channel that discontent and that lack of energy and passion around your faith onto other people or other things, and eventually your church community. You know, while the reason I lack energy or passion when it comes to God or my faith or it feels unfulfilling, it's just because of the people I work around, like they're not into it, or it's who I'm married to, or it's because of my church, you know, it's, it's the music, I don't connect, or the sermons, they're too long, they're too boring, and no one seems to really care whether I'm there or I'm not, when what's really happening is that you may have never truly understood how connected 
the courage factor is to having a vibrant faith and how necessary it is to channel a chunk of your resources of time and money and energy into something bigger than you that costs you but will outlive you. Frequently, Jesus described following him in terms of carrying a cross or dying to self to live for something bigger as he did. And, and in doing so, what you experience as you reach the end of your life is something thrilling and satisfying and meaningful. We began last week looking at a Jewish man named Nehemiah and a vision that God gave him. And as we trace his story, we gain incredible insights into experiencing, into the idea of experiencing and embracing and living a life with a God-given, God-guided vision and all that comes with it. We learned that Nehemiah, he was a Jewish captive who lived in Persia. He hears that Israel, in the capital city of Jerusalem, is in ruins. In fact, it had been in ruins for over a hundred years. And even though Nehemiah had never been to, to Jerusalem, he hears word of this, and he hears how terrible things are, and suddenly he has this deep, irresistible burden to do something about it. And in looking at the story, we discovered three things about Nehemiah. The first is that he was someone who understood what God was up to in the world. The second thing was that he was concerned with the things that concerned God. And the third thing that we learned from Nehemiah that sets us up for today is that he was wrecked by what could and should be as compared to what was. He wrestled with the fact that he loved his people. And even though they'd been able to return to their homeland, they were struggling and they were suffering. And he wrestled with the fact that God had established Israel to be the nation from which the Messiah would come from. And as he wrestled with the tension of what could and should be with what is compared to what was, God birthed a vision in Nehemiah. And for those of us who are Christians, as you begin to see the world and culture and our neighbors and our friends and your coworkers and your family members, your prodigal sons, your prodigal daughters, or your, our parents, as we begin to see the people and the world around us as God does, and the brokenness and what is versus what could and should be, and as we begin to discover from his wor word what he ultimately wants for the world and for all the people around us, it will give birth to a guiding vision in every one of our lives, and he will give us that thing that makes life truly worth living, and so that we have a greater chance of coming to the end of knowing that our lives mattered in this life and in ways that will outlive us and make a difference. So this morning, we're going to learn three important principles from Nehemiah out of chapter 2. So if you have your Bible or Bible app and want to follow along, we'll actually go to the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, and we're going to pick up and then transition into chapter 2. But in the last verse of, uh, of chapter 1, verse 11, Nehemiah says this, And I was cupbearer to the king. And in those few words, the first principle we learn from Nehemiah is that God has positioned you. God has positioned you and is using your circumstances to prepare you to accomplish his vision for your life. See, my natural tendency in yours is to look at your position in your school, in your family, in your workplace, in your life, and think, I don't think so. There is nothing special about my position. But think of it, the king of Persia, he is the most powerful man in the world at the time. Nehemiah is nothing. He's just a servant. I, I mean, Nehemiah's job was, whenever the king was going to drink wine, Nehemiah would take it first, or drink it first, 
And then they'd wait for about an hour or so, see if he dropped dead. If he didn't drop dead, the king would go ahead and drink his wine. That was Nehemiah's job. I mean, literally, his life was worth nothing. His, his job every day was to literally lay his life down for the king. And now, Nehemiah has been given this burden for a city and a nation that he's never even visited, but he knows his nation is in disarray, and he has this passion and this burden to go back home and do something, but it's not like he can put in for some PTO or go out the back gate and head to Israel because he's part of a captive people. He's basically a slave who works for the king, and the king relies on him for his protection. And he must have wondered, God, God, why would you give me this vision? Why would you give me this burden? There's nothing that I can do about it. The problem is too big, and I am too small and insignificant. In fact, if anyone would be against Israel becoming a great nation again, it's Nehemiah's boss, the king of Persia, because his predecessors had gone and wiped out Israel and Judah to start with. See, the problem for us is we're able to see it from this side of things. We have to look at it from the front end. I mean, think about all the meaningless days for Nehemiah growing up in this foreign city, having a bit of Jewish culture, a bit of Persian culture, kind of working his way up through the ranks, not in the Hebrew culture, but as a Persian captive in the Persian community, in the Persian palace as a servant. And so someone connected to the palace says, hey, you know young Nehemiah, the Jewish captive? You know, I think he should maybe serve in such and such role. And someone introduces him to someone. And over time, he serves in these different roles as a Jewish captive. And eventually he works his way up to be assigned the cupbearer of the king. And don't miss this. Those seemingly meaningless circumstances, circumstances that seem to be in the way of him accomplishing something huge, were the very circumstances that God engineered to set him up, to get him in the right place at the right time to accomplish something amazing. Because it was through Nehemiah that Jerusalem was rebuilt, the city that the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, would come to 400 years later. And consistently you find through both the Old and the New Testament, God engineers our circumstances to set us up for his vision for our life. No matter what your past or present, when you come to the place in your life that you're willing to say, God, help me to see people the way you see them and break my heart for what breaks yours. When that happens, all those meaningless circumstances and mundane, mundane day-to-day circumstances, even the sin in your past, even the things in your life that you wish you could go back and undo or unsay, God takes all of that. He weaves all that together to position you for what he wants to do in and through you in the lives of others. That's just what God does. God is the expert of taking bad circumstances and even bad choices and making them good. I mean, just take some time to read about the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul stepped onto the pages of history as a one-man wrecking machine bent on exterminating the Jesus movement. He personally had a hand in the death and the imprisonment of hundreds of Jesus followers until the day he had an encounter with a resurrected Jesus, after which he turns or does a 180, and he becomes the greatest church planter and missionary who has ever lived. Or imagine the worst thing that ever happened in history, the murder of God's son. Yet it is the thing that has impacted all of us, that potentially changes all of our lives. God took the murder of his son and made it the source of life for anyone who would receive it. See, the great thing about being a Christian or a disciple or a follower of Jesus, and if you're not one, we desperately hope you'll become one. The great thing is is if you allow God, he will take 
of your past and your present, and he will cast an entirely different shadow of meaning across your life and for the future. And it doesn't matter how old or how young you are. God is using and establishing and is, and is in some cases, engineering the events and the circumstances of your life to prepare you for ultimately what he wants to do in and through you in the lives of others. The Bible is basically an endless series of stories of men and women of all ages and stages and marital statuses of life that God positioned to set up and do great things through. And if you will allow, if you will allow him, God will use your circumstances to birth a great sense of purpose and vision for your life. That's the first thing that we learn from Nehemiah. The second is that what God initiates, he orchestrates. See, God gave Nehemiah a great big what. Here's what God wants me to do. Here's what God wants me to accomplish. God wants me to go to Jerusalem and be a part of or even lead the team that rebuilds the walls of the city because besides just physical walls and restoring a physical city, he knew what that would do for the morale and the psyche and the well-being of his people and his nation whom he had compassion on. He had a great, big, huge what. The problem was is he had no how. He had no idea how, but here's the principle. When God births a what in you, God already has the how. See, here, here's how God began bringing the what in Nehemiah into reality. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine, and then I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in the presence of the king before, so the king asked, asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. Why? Because in that culture, you were never sad in front of the king, especially if you were a servant. Everyone in that culture was happy in front of the king. If you were sad in front of the king, they could actually take your life for that. Plus, the reason for his sadness also made him afraid because he was sad for his fallen country, which this king ruled. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city of my ancestors is buried and lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The place where I'm ultimately from, king, it's, it's in ruins. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. See, if you ever think there's no humor in the Bible, like for any of us have had a moment, we were, we were about to do something or say something a little bit terrifying. It's like, oh God, what am I doing? What am I doing? God, if you're not in this, this is going to be a problem. It's going to go really bad. So he says this quick prayer, and then he composes himself. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? And again, we're on this side. What? By all cultural norms, he should have been a dead man. Instead, it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And this next part is important. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, which was that entire area, so that they will provide me safe conduct, conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams and for the gates and, uh, of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. 
and because, of the great, because the gracious hand of my God was with me. He granted my request. So get the picture. Here's Nehemiah. He doesn't have just a big idea or a good idea. He's got a God-sized idea. He's here with this huge what, but he has no possible how. I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time for any of this. God says, Nehemiah, relax. Take a breath. I've got this. And then one day the king just happens to say to a servant, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? If he answers, it will likely end badly because my city is in a horrible mess. And this ruthless, conquering warrior king just suddenly out of the tenderness of his heart responds, bummer, how can I help? In response, Nehemiah gives him a quick, intelligent answer. He says, I need protection, accompaniment, and timber. Why was he able to answer so quickly and intelligently? And again, for us, this is so important. Because Nehemiah had done everything he could do knowing that God was going to have to do his part if this was going to work. In other words, Nehemiah had spent hours thinking this through. If I had the chance to go to Jerusalem, what would I need? What needs to take place? And as he, was, he was as prepared as he could possibly be. But there was a big, big gap between what he could do and the fulfillment of this vision. And because he was faithful and courageous enough to do his part, God was then able to step in and fill this huge gap and provide the what, the how to this overwhelming what. Listen, more visions, more visions have died over the question of how than over anything else. God gives you a what, you look at the how, you have no idea how, the vision dies. God gives you a what. Maybe it's for a neighbor or a coworker or a friend or a prodigal child or an aging, uh, aging parent. It's a big what or a vision for a group or for a ministry to start or for a ministry or compassion effort to get involved in. Maybe it's a big what for the people at your work or for the city or for the world. Or you see someone or a people group or an age group or a demographic of people who are struggling and a big what begins to get your heart beating faster for a minute, but then you see how enormous the what is and you begin to ask how. How in the world could I ever do that? How could I possibly do anything? How could I ever talk to them? How could I ever persuade them? How, how in the world could I possibly make any real difference? How, 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 how? And since I don't know how, the vision dies and goes nowhere. But I'm telling you, if there's anything that I've learned from studying Scripture, which is essentially story after story after story of men and women and young people who throughout history, for whom God gave a big what, and from 54 years of life and having watched men and women and young people of faith, if there's anything I've learned, it's if, if God gives you a what, you stay focused on the what and you watch God to give you the how. When God gives you a what, don't let your passion die and your vision die over a question of how. He specializes in how. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. If God gives you a what and you think you already know how, you're likely wrong. Or it's not from God. If it's a good idea, you're limited to your resources and potential. If it's a God idea, you're limited to His resources and potential. 
Because imagine how impossible what Nehemiah envisioned was. I mean, the city had been ruined for over a hundred years. Nobody knew him. He was a nobody. He'd never even been there. And yet one day the impossible happens. He's standing before the most powerful man in the world at that time. And the great pagan king says, if you want to go, if you want to rebuild the city of your people, the one that my predecessors destroyed because of their persistent rebellion, that sounds like a great idea. Let me help with that. What do you need? You need lumber? You got it. You need protection? You got it. You need letters? You got them. I mean, think how insane this sounds. But when God gives you a what, how is no problem. Our responsibility is to stay focused on the what God has called us to do, to do only what we can do, and then trust him to fill in the gaps. Which is why, again, not trying to be mean. It's just a connection. But if you feel like your Christian life is boring, it's because you lack a God-given guiding vision for what God wants to do in and through you in the lives of others. Because here's the third principle we learned from Nehemiah. God, a God-given vision builds our faith because it serves as a constant reminder of our dependence on God, which is ultimately what God wants for all of us. I mean, all of us, we are 100% dependent on God. But there is a big difference in our understanding of that dependence and our awareness of that dependence. See, when you get a calling or a you've got a great big what, but you don't have a how or a when. And when that happens, your faith, your awareness of your dependence on God, it skyrockets. And this is what really makes the Christian life exciting because then you live every day of your life. You wake up with this overwhelming feeling, I don't know how. I don't know how. I, I can't do it. You're going to have to, God, you're going to have to do this. If you don't show up, it's not going to happen. And I know this to be true because I live this every single day of my life as a church planting pastor. Because like Nehemiah, I'm a nobody. I have known and do know great men and great pastors. I'm not one of them. I embrace my averageness. In fact, one of the reasons I tend to be uncomfortable, and some people know this, with people calling me pastor, even though I am one, is because I'm acutely aware that I am nothing more than a man who God allowed to have a radically life-altering experience with Jesus, who gave me a big what at the age of 19 to spend the rest of my life doing all I can to inspire as many people as possible to follow Jesus. So in my life, most mornings, my alarm goes off about 4.20 a.m., and as soon as I get my coffee, one of the first things I do is I go and I drop to my knees at my office chair and I pray every day. God, being a pastor, planting a church, this was your idea, okay? So if you don't show up, it's going to fail. I wake up every day knowing how inadequate I am, and I'm okay with it. Because the fact that six years in, actually six years as of last Sunday, here we are as a church that first began with about 10 people on my back deck, is a testament to God, not me. And as a church, we have a great 
big what? To help people find and follow Jesus, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, to be a catalyst for spiritual and social change makers. But if God doesn't come through, it's not going to happen. See, as a pastor, one of my biggest concerns is that Christians that have no vision have no mission. I see this all the time. Christians that have no vision, their prayers, you know, they will acknowledge. They're kind of self-focused, kind of lifeless, kind of powerless. And for many, their lives get a little sloppy because who cares? I've got my ticket to heaven someday. I'm good. Christians who have no God-given vision for what God wants to do in and through their life have no passion and no sense of mission. And when that happens, you know what happens when a Christian has no vision or mission? It's predictable. They get critical, and they gripe, and they complain. Because Christians with no vision see the church as an institution designed to meet their needs. Christians with no vision see the church as an institution to care for them and to care for their families. Christians with no vision see themselves as part of a congregation of people who show up on Sunday morning or watch online to get their needs met, as opposed to seeing themselves as part of an army on a greater, the greatest mission of their lives. Jesus says, does not say, go therefore in all the world and take care of one another. We are to do that, but not just that. He said, go into all the world and find people who don't know about me, who don't know me, introduce them to me, and then teach them how to follow me and how to grow in me, make disciples. If you are a Christian, and especially knowing the huge percentage of introverts we have, as terrifying and overwhelming as it may seem to you, God has given you a mission. He's given every one of us a mission in our own little worlds, in our own little neighborhoods, in our own little sphere of influence, in our jobs, in our workplace, in our college classes, at your school. God wants to do something in and through you, in the lives of others. That's just a fact. And when you finally understand and surrender to that fact, it will totally change your perspective on your life, our church, and what you experience when we gather together. And the amazing thing is, as the more others-focused we become and the more mission-driven we become, the better care we will take of one another. Because in an others-focused environment, you will be taken care of like in no other place. It's sort of like how the army has medics, but the army is really not all about healing sick people. It's about accomplishing a greater mission, and God has put us on a mission to where we are to go toe-to-toe against an opposing enemy who is relentless in seeking to steal, kill, and destroy any good in our lives and the lives of everyone around us, the people that we care about, and including, and maybe especially, the next generation all the small humans in these rooms next to us, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, and as God births in you a guiding purpose and a vision for your life, it will do something to your faith and you will never recover as you watch God use you to reach the people around you and change their lives. So, as we wrap up, let me just ask the Christians a question. And I especially want to target the men. But for all of us, is there anything in your Christian life right now that demands courage from you?
Is there anything in the realm of your spiritual life that demands courage and self-sacrifice? Or if you were honest, is your Christian life pretty much about making sure you go to heaven when you die and making your life better? Is there anything in your Christian life that demands courage from you? We've, we've all seen our education or jobs, our secular or personal pursuits uh, demand courage from us and maybe even de- demand sacrifice. But does anything in your relationship with your Savior Any element of your spiritual life right now demand courage from you because if you're a Christian and there's nothing in your spiritual life that demands courage, to put this as gently and succinctly as I can, it's time to rethink your walk with God and your priorities as it connects to His kingdom and this community. So what is it? What are you trusting God to do in and through you that affects people other than your family? Is there anyone outside your family that you pray for? And what you pray for them elicits emotion. Do you have any concept of what God wants to do in and through you in the lives of others? And if not, I'm going to help you out. The first thing that you need to do starting today is just to begin praying, Heavenly Father, help me to see the people around me the way you see them. Not fat, skinny, rich, poor, available, unavailable, married, unmarried, too loud, too quiet, too outgoing, too introverted, too weird, but to see them as precious, priceless, beloved, lost, dying, in need. The second thing you need to begin praying consistently is, Heavenly Father, burden me with the things that burden you. Concern me with the things that concern you. Because if you become concerned with the things that concern Him, you'll do a 360 around your life and you will get a burden for someone or some group of people. God will birth a vision in in your life. And let me tell you how this relates to, to all of us as a church If you consider New Life your church, just imagine. Imagine if every one of us who identifies as a Christian felt a specific call and vision in our life. You feel like you're called to work with children and you get linked up with another person. They feel called to work with children. You do that. Someone else has a vision for teens and then you get linked up with another person that has a vision for teens. You get a vision for a marginalized group in our city or our world and you get linked up with others that have that same vision. And imagine if all of us individually, we opened ourselves up and sensed and discovered a deep burden and vision from God for somebody or for some people group or group of people. And then we came together with all of our little visions under the broader vision and mission of this church, which is very simple, to help people find and follow Jesus and to make disciples to make who make disciples, to create a church that the unchurched would love to attend and engage. Imagine if we were simply an expanding community of people who have discovered and surrendered to the love of their Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, a community of individuals who have intentionally 
we're changing our calendars and we're directing resources and prioritizing our lives around the values and the principles of his word who have chosen to link up not just to set up and tear down for a Sunday morning experience but to engage in God's redemptive works in this broken world to demonstrate radical love to others with the ultimate goal of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, that is what God had had in mind when he established the church that we are a part of. And I I know you're all busy and you're stretched in your lives, you're tired, you're bombarded with time-sucking distractions from every screen, every direction, while facing the demands of school and work, and you're busy, you're operating on too little sleep, especially if you're raising babies, you're raising children, maybe you're taking care of aging parents or grandchildren, you're working hard to take care of your finances, you're working hard at your job, you're trying to keep your house up and running and stay ahead of your bills, and then there are all these dynamics with all the relationships that you're in and navigating those. You've got all this stuff going on, but in the midst of that, if you haven't already, Would you decide to not settle for a ticket to heaven when I die, boring, anemic, lifeless faith that operates in the background? And would you choose to carve out, not the leftovers, but to carve out a slice of your life and time and say, God, I've got all these things going on, but God, if you can weave all those things into a vision for my life, do it. In fact, if you ask me to, and if you'll help me, I'll get some things off of my plate because I'm available. I want to see the world the way that you see it. I want to see people the way you see them. I want to feel about all that the way you feel about all of that. And then I want you to show me how I'm to respond in my little world, in my little sphere of influence to all these things, how you want me to respond. And you know what God will do? God will take your busyness, and your pain, and your single things, and your married things, and your financial things, and transform things that are negative into positive things, and he will use it, and he'll transform you and the people around you. As the band comes up, my, my prayer for our church is that we will simply be a congregation of people. For those of us that we'd say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower. We'd be a congregation of people on mission, on personal mission, uh, with a personal vision and a corporate mission and a corporate vision that we have positioned ourselves individually and collectively in such a way that God has been invited to do whatever he wants to do in and through us. If he says go left, we'll all go left. If he says go right, we'll all go right. And the only thing that we're locked in onto forever is following God's vision and mission for our lives And if we do that, what you will experience personally and what we will experience corporately corporately as a church in this city and beyond will be incredible and beyond anything you could ask or imagine. So it's fitting that we close with this song, Rattle. It should make you want to take a glance at your Old Testament, like bones, dry bones, rattling. Just like Google Elijah Bones, it'll come up. But the opening lyrics, lyrics of this song say... Saturday was silent. Surely it was through. Because Jesus was dead and everybody had scattered. But since when has impossible ever stopped you? Friday's disappointment is Sunday's empty tomb. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? So 
want to encourage you to remember that this morning is part of an ongoing conversation. So, first step right now is pray, God, help me to see people as you see them. And God, help me to be burdened for what you're burdened for. And as we continue the next few weeks, we'll build on that. So, don't give up. Don't be overwhelmed. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I pray for all of us that, God, you truly would. Help us see the people around us the way you do, not as means to an end, not as inconveniences, but God, with the way that you look at us. And God, as much as you're willing and as much as we can handle, burden us with what burdens you. For the people in our lives, for our city, and for the next generation, God, that you would help us to set an example for them that someday when they're adults and they're telling the story and people experience them as community changers and standouts in the world because of the good that they do and the love they show, the sacrificial love they show, this prevailing faith, that they'll be able to point to us and say that they learned it from us because we lived it. So God, lead us in this. We pray that you would do something extraordinary in our community. I pray for every single one of us that you would burden us specifically for what you have called us to do. And that, Father, that then together we'll rally around one another as you have called us to do. To partner with one another, to encourage one another and help one another and resource one another to make happen what you would make happen specifically in this community, in this world. So I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.